There are more than 10 million people in prison throughout the world, and governments across the globe need to find a way to keep them safe during the COVID-19 threat. Every prison system poses a different challenge, so how do we even begin to think about guidance to help internationally? My name is Omar Phoenix Khan, and this is Justice Focus. Coronavirus, COVID-19, does not acknowledge state borders and has become a global pandemic. The usual barriers that we use to separate people, whether at national borders or prison walls, are ineffective at preventing the passage of the virus. The United Nations, the World Health Organization and many others have highlighted prisons as particular places of vulnerability to the spread of COVID-19 and as such represent a danger to prisoners and staff alike. Governments across the world are in the process of deciding how best to reduce this danger whilst also maintaining law and order. But different countries are facing very different contexts and a solution for some might not be possible for others. Access to healthcare and basic sanitation varies widely, as does staffing, resources and many other very important aspects. Penal Reform International, or PRI, is a non-governmental organisation working globally to promote criminal justice systems that uphold human rights for all and do no harm. They work to make criminal justice systems non-discriminatory and protect the rights of disadvantaged people. PRI run practical human rights programmes and support reforms that make criminal justice fair and effective. Olivia Rope is an expert in human rights protection, particularly in the areas of persons deprived of liberty, prohibition of torture and ill-treatment, and gender-responsive systems. After receiving her LLM from the University of Amsterdam in international and European law, Olivia worked with non-governmental organisations on human rights, both at the European Union and United Nations levels. She spent four years with Amnesty International and is currently in her eighth year at Penal Reform International, where she is the Director of Policy and International Advocacy. Olivia, welcome to Justice Focus. Thank you, Omar. Thank you for that introduction. No problem. Um, first of all, yeah, hope you're, hope you're well, hope your team's well. How are you finding being at home? Have you carved out a space as a home office or are you sat at the kitchen table? Uh, no, no, as... I've set up a little office um, yeah. and I've even set up a little background for all of my Zooms and Skypes. Um, so okay. it's looking very professional around here. All right. What have you got? Um, some plants and, um, you know, some books that I like and a few things like that. Sounds good. Okay, so um, PRI was pretty quick off the mark in terms of getting out some guidance to the international NGO community about how we can start to Mm -hmm. think about responding to the virus. But before we get to some of those recommendations, how do you go about approaching the creation of recommendations that can be applicable to situations as different as a supermax prison in the USA or prisons without running water in Malawi, or prisons that are completely reliant on prisoners to run the prison regime themselves in places like Brazil. Yeah. How do you even start to bring something together that's helpful to everybody? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. Um, and I think um, the issues that you mentioned before in your introduction, um, you know, it kind of shows that no size um, fits all, but there are mm. common Um, challenges that we see um, in penitentiary systems kind of globally Um, and 
I think with coronavirus, um, the, the, the common challenges to basically prevent um, outbreaks happening in places of detention and then adequately respond if cases do pop up. Um, mm. So that's certainly common, um, but the context is very, very different. Um, and we really took um, as our starting point the human rights international framework that we work with all the time. Um, so yeah. if you sort of take those principles and you take um, practical rules from the Nelson Mandela rules, the Bangkok rules, um, then, you know, and you apply that um, to emergency times, to normal times, um, there's, mm. it's kind of, um, that kind of leads you to the specific recommendations that we did issue. Um, yeah. But also, I think what's, what we were able to do and what we see lots of other organisations doing is kind of um, trying to support prisons to adopt measures that would um, protect people's health, um, you know, in prison, the staff and in the community, um, but that those measures are within the kind of, um, you know, human rights framework and they're going to be not only um, effective, but they're not going to kind of lead to violations of, of human rights and kind of more, more, more disasters than what we're already in, in seeing on an everyday basis at the moment. Um, so, yeah, definitely very, very different contexts, very different challenges. And, you know, um, I think if you're talking about European prisons where um, there might be more resources available, um, there might already mm. be kind of joined up um, coordination mm. between like health and, and prisons and so on, um, that's very, very different to places like in Latin America where you had prisons that were already on the brink of collapse um, mm. and now this is sort of edging them closer to a very, very big um, disaster. Um, and so swift action was really needed and that's why we worked really hard as soon as we could see where this was leading to um, yeah. issue some guidance. Yeah, so it's even though you weren't working specifically on obviously the idea of a pandemic before what you're saying is that while because there were existing standards like the mandela rules which is a, a basic minimum standards for the treatment of prisoners it's kind of a scaling up or a or or going deeper into mm -hmm. those recommendations yeah i mean in principle the, the this mm. coronavirus um pandemic um it has taken people by surprise, obviously, and, and also yeah. kind of the extent to what um, has happened is just unprecedented and we couldn't have expected it even a month ago. Um, yeah. But in principle, um, prison management shouldn't have been taken by surprise in terms of, you know, outbreaks of communicable diseases um, because contingency plans should actually be in place. Um and these sort of um, preparedness plans, contingency plans, and emergency plans, whatever you call them, they mm. are kind of a cornerstone of um, ensuring health and safety of people that the state um, are depriving people of liberty. So they have that duty to ensure the health and safety of the people that they're um, you know, taking away the liberty from. 
Um, and so when, you know, we've already been looking um, in the last year at kind of what prisons do in terms of natural disaster plans. Um, mm. And so it's it sort of also feeds into the, into our knowledge about that, that when there's like um, a hurricane or a cyclone, like what happens? And, and this is this is very different, but, you know, the same kind of principles apply. Um, yeah. So, yeah, if you're looking at the Nelson Mandela rules and the Bangkok rules, you have, you know, clear guidance around like right to health and hygiene um, about kind of limiting um, visits, for example, you know, that they can only mm. kind of be limited um, where necessary and the kind of measures put in place need to be proportionate and so on. Um, and yeah. then, of course, all of the sort of rights around um being free from torture and ill treatment, they um, can never, you know, they can never be... Um, superseded. Yeah, they can't be superseded, exactly. Um, yeah. yeah, so there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of kind of guidance in those standards and, in, you know, best mm. practice out there. And it's just really yeah. about when you're limiting all of those um, rights and the obligations of the state, there's, um, you know, very clear principles as to how they can be limited. Yeah. Okay, well, now seems like a good time to actually look at some of the guidance that you've been putting out there. Um, are there some sort of key points you'd like to discuss here? I know that the actual guidance is on the Penal Reform International website, so if people want to see it in detail, that they can... They can go there, but what kind of what points would you like to pick out to highlight now? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I think um, if we look at the kind of measures that um, prisons and authorities are taking, um, the first one that comes to mind is that a number of countries um, have reduced the number of people in prison. Um, and this yeah. was one of our recommendations, and we very, you know, very much welcome all of those moves. Um, so we've seen, you know, really well publicised um, countries. We've seen Iran um, have released around a hundred thousand mm. prisoners, which is forty um, percent of their prison population. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's huge. And um, Indonesia just yesterday or the day before announced that they'd be releasing thirty thousand prisoners. Um, we've also seen, you know, countries like France um, suspend um, any kind of short-term prison sentences that were handed down recently to stop the yeah. inflow um, as well as kind of the releases. So um, the obvious recommendation, I mean, really was to let's reduce the risk by reducing the number of people in prison. And this can have a number of um, kind of knock-on effects. First of all, um, in countries where there's like double um, cell occupancy, you can maybe reduce that to one person per cell. You can kind of maybe um, follow social distancing principles a bit better. Um, but mm -hmm. also the other obvious implication of reducing, pe um, reducing the prison populations is you're just going to have... Um, probably higher hygiene standards, um, you know, less people in cramped, overcrowded conditions. Um, so that yeah. if a case um, does pop up, which it can, and we have seen that it, it, you know, it has happened in some countries, there's just less people that are going to be affected, less deaths, um, you know, less kind of consequences. Um, mm. And we are facing um, a situation now where, 
despite, you know, some mass releases, um, most countries um, are terrified as are we that if cases do pop up in prison, there will just be major, major difficulties in containing containing it. And this isn't just yeah. about in prisons, um, you know, even with kind of bans on visit visits and so on, still you have prison staff that are going in and out every day um, and you have mm. people being released and so on. And so it's also about public health. It's not just about prison yeah. health. No, definitely. And I, I wanted to ask you specifically about visits and about prison staff as well. But just before we do that, you mentioned about the large-scale releases in some places. What's your view on how that's being handled in different by different governments? Because I know that PRI advocates for less people in prison in the first place, but there'll always be certain corners of the population and the media that will be very worried about prisoners leaving and possibly spreading the virus, and then also assume that there'll be an increasing crime. So how have we found mm. different countries have been with dealing with yeah. this? Well, yeah, I think first of all, it's really important for um, the government to communicate who has been released um, or you mm. know, who is not going to go into prison after being convicted of a criminal offence because of these emergency measures. Um, as you mentioned, many of these people um, arguably were not a public safety risk in the first place. Um, mm -hmm. Also, a lot of people that have been released were going to be anyway in a few months. So it's kind of being brought forward. Um, and the, the people that um, are not being admitted to prison because they're receiving like a non-custodial sanction, um, for example, they might be, you know, they might have conditions like wearing an electronic tag um, or mm. reporting to a probation officer and so on. So there's, there's definitely kind of safeguards in place. Um, and I think, um, you know, the, the, the authorities know who they're imprisoning and they're going to be, you know, applying very strict criteria to make sure that there's no public risk. Um, in fact, I've seen um, one study already come out to show that um, in these, I think it was across four cities in the US, um, despite mass releases due to the coronavirus, there had been absolutely no change to the crime rate um, yeah. in the short term. So I think, you know, that kind of evidence um, collection is going to be very critical um, and we'll be looking at doing that, for example, because we need to be able to show, um, you know, that although these um, measures to reduce pop prison populations are taken in a moment of crisis, um, perhaps that can, you know, be used to bring more sustained reform um, in the longer term. Um, yeah, certainly I've heard optimists emphasise that point, that hopefully yeah, people yeah. will be able to see that there are many people unnecessarily put in prison. Absolutely. Yeah, and then and then just in regard to um, the concerns around people being released who, you know, maybe then spreading coronavirus, um, that is a really important point. And I have seen some good practice where screenings and testing is taking place of anybody being released um, mm. so that they can be put into isolation before being released or, you know, in the community in isolation. So that's kind of yeah. where, again, you come back to the whole like prison healthcare coordination um, in the community mm. so that you don't. Um, you know, so that the prisons are supported because they might not necessarily have the test kits available to them. So that's where you, you need to have the ministries and the authorities talking to each other.
And you mentioned um, about visits. And I know that obviously in in the normal state of affairs, visits are incredibly important for prisoners' mental health. And also we know in the long term, uh, contact with the outside world is vital to reduce reoffending. Mm-hmm. Um, but in some parts of the world, it's even more important in terms of getting vital medicine and basic things like food and water that are brought in yeah. by prisoners' families. So how do you balance reducing visits, which in some sense makes complete sense because that can prevent the spread of the virus and that's about social distancing. But there'll be people that potentially will suffer more from hunger and mm. um, the, than the virus in the first place. So again, I'm giving you a very difficult question here, but have you seen different governments react to this in different ways? Yeah, sh- yeah sure. Um, yeah, I think the the restricting access and movement in and out of prison is the most, you know, common kind of broad measure that we've seen. Most countries have brought in these restrictions and um, legitimately, I guess, um, you know, you need to kind of stop people just moving in and out, um, perhaps with the, the virus coming out of prison or going in prison. Um, so we've seen, yeah, access to prisons has been kind of distinguished. So some places have said, okay, like no visits, or some have said mm-hmm. no contact visits. Um, we are very concerned about um, blanket bans of any kind of access because this will prevent um, monitoring bodies, including torture prevention monitoring bodies, um, yeah. And the UN echoed our calls, um, and so have many other um, international organisations, saying that yes, there needs to be prevention measures and you know equipment for these monitors um, to to protect the health of everybody. Um, but perhaps you know even with an adapted monitoring methodology and and prevention gear at an emergency time like this, they must be given access. It's really important that um, monitoring can continue. Um, mm. And in terms of kind of where visits, you, you mentioned, you know, the impact on mental health and well-being of people when they can't see um, their families. Um, I mean, that in a normal time is a concern, but at a time like this yeah. where they're getting bits of information about, you know, coronavirus and the whole world shutting down, I just can't even imagine the levels of, of anxiety that you would feel being in prison. Um, so, yeah, we, we saw in Italy, for example, that um, they've given out 1,600 smartphones, um, distrib- you know, they've distributed mm. them through the prison so detainees can make more phone calls to relatives um, while the visits have been stopped. So those kind of measures um, are absolutely necessary so that even if contact visits can't take place, they can at least speak to two families um yeah and you know i mean looking at these kind of um visit bans and so on really they just then you know the people that are making them need to really think what is proportionate um Mm. and this and how long does it need to be in place um and they should be making these decisions with healthcare experts not just on their own Um, and so that's where you kind of come back to, you know, ensuring that safeguards are in place, ensuring there's a review built in, um, you know, you know, kind of every week, I would say, um, or even every two weeks, depending on how serious um, the transmission rates are in the community. Um, so, you know, we see in some countries 
where there's very, very few cases, um, there's blanket bans being brought in just across the board. And mm. we would say that that's actually really um, not in line with international standards. And it also, just on a practical point of view, tensions rise, um, incidents of violence rise. There's very real evidence that that's what happens when people um, in prison are not able to see their families. We've seen this in, in Colombia and in Brazil. There have already been riots Absolutely. over the yeah. prevention of um, visits. Yeah, there's been riots in several countries, Italy included. Um, hmm. So I think that it's kind of, it's not just about kind of keeping things ticking over, but it's about ensuring that um, the safety of staff and the safety of people detained can be, um, you know, retained in these times of emergency and visits yeah. and, and kind of contact with the outside world is really um, a, a, really a key part of ensuring that yeah. everybody kind of stays in order. And you just mentioned, uh, uh, you just touched on staff again there. I'd wondered if you, there's anything you wanted to say around that. I know from working in a prison that a lot of the staff feel like the emphasis is always on the prisoners. How have you seen governments try to safeguard yeah, their own sure. staff in these situations? Yeah, I mean, it's been a bit of a mixed bag, I think, um, primarily because this did kind of, um, you know, the, the emergency pandemic kind of crisis mode um, did suddenly rise. Um, and so, as I mentioned before, like the necessary plans weren't really in place, unfortunately, in a lot of places. Mm. Um, but I would say the kind of key things, um, key problems that we've seen is like lack of communication and kind of um, concerns for staff around if they are showing or they feel that they um, might have symptoms, um, if there's no kind of sick pay or there's no procedure in place to ensure that they self-isolate, then they're actually coming to work because they're scared yeah. of not being paid. Um, and also we need, you know, we need to recognise that prison staff are actually heroes alongside um, all of the healthcare staff and all the other people that are keeping um, these systems running. Um, yeah. And the statistics um, or the sort of data that I've seen coming from um, colleagues, mainly in Europe so far, have shown that actually prison staff and prison healthcare staff are being infected at a higher rate than prisoners themselves. Um, oh, and, really? Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's really showing that they are really, you know, risking their lives and, and really support has to be given to the families as well. And so, um, you know, really clear policies, procedures about when you can come to work, about um, what kind of protection gear you should be given and so on need to be given. And that, that kind of feeds into the whole issue around funding of prisons. Um, yeah. In our Global Prison Trends report, which we're going to publish in a few weeks, we look at the, the low funding and the low priority that's given to prison budgets. And if governments are really serious about tackling COVID-19 pandemics, then they need to give extra funding to, to prisons because they just don't have the required equipment. Like, as you mentioned, yeah. they don't even necessarily have access to running water, um, let alone kind of like um, masks and, and gloves and so on. Um, mm. So again, you know, staff are being placed in very risky 
um, environments, they're also in these cramped conditions. Okay, they might not sleep there, um, but they're working in those kind of conditions. So we are really yeah. concerned for um, prison staff and prison healthcare staff that continue to go to work. And they are frankly being very brave right now um, in a lot yeah. of context, contexts where they're not being supported. Well, I certainly second those sentiments. So Olivia, I know that PRI has offices all around the world. Do you have any examples that you want to give of first-hand experiences or um, some situations that are coming out of different areas of the world? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, we've obviously been all in very close contact, um, kind of seeing how best PRI can support efforts. Um, and a few kind of key challenges that have popped up where we're looking to see um, how we can help is um, providing the kind of protection equipment that I was mentioning with regard to prison staff, um, prison healthcare staff having so gloves, um, masks and so on. So in Jordan, we're looking at supporting prison authorities and doing that. Um, also um, in Uganda, um, our colleagues are very concerned about the fact that, um, you know, arrests continue. Um, sometimes the, the offences that people are arrested for are related to um, emergency legislation under the coronavirus as well. Um, yeah. But they haven't kind of managed to stop um, the pretrial detention being used, you know, in kind of most cases. And so mm -hmm. we're already we're already kind of seeing massive levels of overcrowding across the prisons in Uganda. Um, and there's just more and more admissions. And because the courts are not hearing the cases, um, you know, there's no kind of outflow or there's no, you know, convictions or otherwise. So we're very concerned about this kind of um, fractured um, reform fractured measures that have been taken where arrests can continue, pre-trial detention can continue, but the courts have basically stopped. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. We've talked a lot about what to do with the current prison system that is there, but obviously there's this funnel of pushing more people into the system all the time. Yeah. Um, are PRI advocating for, for trials to stop and so that we don't put any more people in prison temporarily um, or to change the virtual hearings or... Or any policies yeah. that PRI would specifically suggest? Yeah, it's really, it's, it, it is really tricky. Um, I mean, maybe first of all, just to say that some countries are um, keeping their criminal justice processes, including trials, kind of running. Um, some mm. have adapted. Um, so you see, like in India, for example, only urgent or serious trials are taking place. Um, I'm not sure exactly how they decide what's urgent and you know serious enough to go ahead, but that's kind of mm -hmm. a common measure that we've seen in other countries as well. Um, and then others, you know, um, in the UK, in um, the US as well, you have remote hearings. So, you know, this doesn't even necessarily require really fancy software. Um, I think in the US, some of them are using Skype, um, you know, just yeah. really basic kind of Zoom and so on, like we're using. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we, really con we really consider that there can't, be a legitimate reason for completely halting criminal justice processes. 
Um, yes, there needs to be, um, you know, specific measures put in place so that people are not being required to turn up in court um, and risking their health. Um, but there are really positive examples where remote hearings are going ahead or where you might have, like, um, social distancing processes put in place in courts and so on. Hmm. Um, and definitely um, there are some knock-on effects where, you know, these processes are being halted. So the right to liberty, I mean, you, as I just mentioned, you might end up in pretrial detention literally waiting for months for the courts to yeah. reopen, and then the backlog will just be um, unimaginable. Um, and then also some cases where prisoners um, are not allowed to leave their facility because of coronavirus measures, um, but their trial or their parole hearing goes ahead without them. Um, you know, there's some very real concerns around the right to fair trials. Um, mm. So I think uh, overall it's kind of there might be a need to kind of temporarily slow down or kind of rework how to um, run trials. But I think, you know, the same principles apply. Like, is it, is it absolutely necessary to completely shut down all trials? Um, is it proportionate to the risks that are involved in keeping mm -hmm. them operating in some way or form? Yeah, great. Thanks. And I also wanted to ask you about PRI's work with women and girls. And I know that you specialise in introducing a gender sensitive or a gender responsive approach to justice systems. And so to what extent is that relevant in responding to the mm. pandemic? No, I would say it's very relevant. Um, we know that many of the measures brought in um, around, you know, visits, for example, will affect women differently. We know that women who are separated from their young children um, suffer, you know, mental health conditions as a result. Um, and also um, many of my colleagues and partners who advocate for women in prison from Africa and Latin America have been getting in touch and saying there's major, you know, shortages or there's just no access to sanitary products for women in mm. many of their countries' prisons. Um, and that's because... These essentials are often provided by family members or charities who aren't allowed access. Um, so yeah. you have some, you know, kind of different impacts for women, let's say. Um, we, yeah, the WHO has um, also said that pregnant women, you know, may be at particular risk. And so we've, you know, have seen some moves to kind of protect that group, like in England and Wales, Earlier this week, they announced that um, pregnant women and women with babies living in prison would be released as a priority. Um, so that yeah. those kind of moves are really welcomed. Um, but yeah, there's a lot more um, thought that needs to be put into this. And we are about to um, issue a questionnaire to advocates um, with our partners at the Vance Centre to gather information on how coronavirus in prisons has impacted women specifically. So I'll be mm. able to report back to you about um, the results on that, hopefully in a few weeks. But it's something that definitely um, needs some attention and can be easily Great. overlooked. Okay, so I think we've covered a lot of the guidance and um, the different context of different places in the world. Um, maybe this is a good time now to move on to the last section. 
of our, sure. our chat, which is thinking about collaboration and impact of the work. And so part of the reason I wanted to do this podcast is because people are working really hard doing some really uh, exciting work and vital work in lots of different areas. And um, we've got frontline staff putting themselves in danger. There's NGOs working, there's um, policymakers and government workers, and there's academics specializing in different areas. And I wanted to ask you how, as an NGO, working closely with probation or prison departments yourself how do you find that collaboration no absolutely um i mean our work benefits from kind of first-hand knowledge of going into prisons but also you know from working with um frontline staff from understanding um the challenges of decision makers at the highest level and kind of the everyday mm. work of somebody working with um people who are convicted of, of crimes um or accused of crimes. Um, and then and then with regards to academics, I think, you know, over the, the past kind of eight years while I've been at PRI, I've seen that we've worked um, with academics probably more and more. Um, and it, in times like this, it is just so important to be able to pull on academic research, just like in other sectors. Um, mm. And, you know, partnerships with academics and universities mean that we can have um, very strong evidence-based um, approaches. It means that, you know, because often academics have the means and the, and the time to carry out um, research on a scale that we wouldn't necessarily be able to do, um, you know, because of funding, because of our mandate, because of our methodologies, you know, for many re different yeah. reasons, we wouldn't embark on those kind of, um, you know, really, really intensive kind of, so, you know, um, scoping methodologies and so on. Yeah. And is there anything you wish that, um, I don't know, that people working in ministries of justice understood more about, the, the sort of NGO project cycle work or that you wish academics understood about the realities of working in, you know, an environment where you're constantly having to yeah, I mean, go to donors that they might not understand about. I, yeah. I think we all have kind of our agendas um, and, yeah. <laughs> and it's sort of like lining those agendas up. Um, yeah. And obviously with um, times like this where, just everything is thrown up in the air and it's kind of like, oh my yeah. gosh, where are we all? Um, mm. You know, we're having some really fruitful discussions with um, some donors about them being more flexible and adapting um, and enabling mm. us to continue our really important work, um, which at this moment couldn't be more important because um, obviously yeah. the consequences of not getting it right are just so grave um, and so concerning Exactly, and I think you know, when we're focusing on you know real world changes and and having positive impact, um, I think it's important to think about what we mean by that. And so I mm -hmm. wanted to ask you what what does impact look like for you for, for PRI, but also for you in in your work in your capacity, you know, short term, long term. What do you see as impact? Yeah, um, so I guess you know, if I'm looking at kind of short-term impact and what we're working really hard on now is that mm. ministries, authorities, prisons are acting fast um, to make sure that people in prison are safe and that they are going to be pr protected from this pandemic. Um, 
And, you know, that's kind of where our recommendations come in to reduce the number of people in prison in the first place, look after your prison staff, um, you know, Mm -hmm. and so on. Um, And, you know, my work is very much kind of like advising, um, you know, even kind of different UN actors and so on, on what that could look Mm -hmm. like on a very practical level. Um, and luckily there's lots of information being shared out there um, by us, by our partners and, and so on, where we can gather, you know, real life examples from yesterday and say this is kind of the kind of thing that um, could could work in your context perhaps. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I guess on a longer term, um, we need to learn from this pandemic. We need to see that not only plans are actually put into place for kind of future emergencies like this, um, but really more importantly that prisons are just not kept at the levels where they are dangerously bursting at the seams. Um, It's just, it's really all of the issues that we've been working on for years now are just magnified and they're, you know, it's kind of like, coronavirus isn't necessarily the problem. It's actually all of the other problems that we've been fighting yeah. against for all these years. Um, they're the problems why coronavirus might just tip us all over the, the edge. And so I think yeah. long term, um, there's just there is just so much work to be done. And, and I think now is the moment to really look at how these prison populations have been managed to be reduced in some really difficult difficult contexts and some under some quite harsh regimes. So it's all about kind of seeing what happens and, and showing that actually this could be like a longer term picture where you have occupancy yeah. rates that are safe and rehabilitation purposes of prison can be fulfilled rather than kind of just locking everybody and anybody up for anything. Mm-hmm. Okay, so just lastly then, before we wrap up, if you did have a room full of people who you were able to talk to and say whatever you needed to, who would you put in that room and what are the key messages that you would be saying to them? I mean, I could say I would want, like, you know, President Trump and so on, <laughs> but that, yeah. that might be too difficult of a sell. Yeah, um, you might not get through to him in that time. No. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think I would want to, yeah, speak to the people, you know, prison authorities who kind of are making the the decisions that are being rolled out at like a local prison basis. Um, Yeah. And really because they actually need the support right now. Um, And there is some really good guidance that's been issued by WHO on kind of um, preparing and responding to COVID-19. So, you know, if you're listening, that's kind of where to go to if you're working in a prison. Um, mm-hmm. But I think one thing that we haven't really touched on, which would be, um, you know, one of my main points that I'd want to say if I had 15 minutes is that information and transparency and communication is really critical at this time. Um, you know, we're all living under this kind of unprecedented new normal Um, And in the community, that's hard enough. Um, Anxiety levels are really high. But Mm. for people in prison, um, the uncertainty over what's happening, their ability to control, you know, how they kind of protect themselves from coronavirus, you know, their movement kind of is restricted even more so than um, what we can even imagine in the community. So I would just plead that, you know, whatever measures are being taken, um, they need to be really communicated clearly to prison, prisoners, staff, families, um, 
and you know you know they need to make sure that they kind of deliver messages around why they are so important um information about coronavirus what it is how it can be transmitted um, and also, you know, around how long these measures are going to be in place, how people can ask questions. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, that's how we'll kind of prevent the unrest and riots that we've seen in, in a few countries and how we can kind of help the people that, you know, are really vulnerably um, in vulnerable positions detained um, yeah. at this time. So, yeah, I think whatever measures are being taken, whether they're, you know, they're legitimate or not, and and I wouldn't want to get into analysis of that, but, you know, there needs to be very, very clear communication and information around this time. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much for that. Thanks, Omar. It was really nice to talk to you. Yeah, always a pleasure. So if people want to follow PRI or follow you or find the guidance, uh, where should they go? Our website's penalreform.org, which is very easy. Um, and you can find all of our social media links um, on the website. But if Great. you want to show us, um, follow us on Twitter, we're at penalreformint, I-N-T. Um, and we, yeah, we're kind of using social media to share good examples, share resources. Um, so very, very much welcome seeing you on social media. And our, yeah, our, our briefing is available um, in multiple languages now. So we've got English, oh, yeah. French, Very good point. Yeah, yeah. Russian, Arabic, um, Turkish. So yeah, Brilliant. go and download it. Thank you so much. Thanks, Omar. Really nice to talk to you. Say well. Okay, so thanks again for listening. Lots of really difficult issues to be tackled over the coming weeks but also some reasons to be optimistic. I hope you agree. In light of the fact we want to get these messages out, please do like the show, subscribe to the show. You never miss an episode that way, but also it helps people to discover the podcast. And please just send it around to anybody that you feel will find it interesting or valuable to their work. Other than that, thanks a lot. See you next time. Cheers.